Welcome to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, gallery curators Clarissa Chikemko and Roger Nelson and conservator Mark Huso exchange perspectives on two paintings. A detailed 1930s portrait of a formerly attired Burmese gentleman by Siamit and a 1940s dreamlike depiction of a hunter by Emeria Sunasa. Thanks everyone for coming. So today is really um, our excuse to pick Ma's brain. This is um, Ma Kuso, um, the painting conservator that we um, are very lucky to be able to work with um, here. But I thought before we um, move into doing that, Clarissa and I would first uh, introduce the two artists that we're talking about. So we're sitting here in Gallery 5 of the Southeast Asia Galleries. Um, covers the early to middle 20th century and it's a very special gallery in the narrative um, of the Southeast Asia galleries because this is where we see two things happening. One, the emergence of kind of newly professionalised institutions and infrastructures for art. So for example, the establishment of art schools, art collectives and so on. And two, uh, a kind of self-conscious breaking away from some of the sort of more realistic or naturalistic modes of representation that we've seen in the previous galleries down the hall. So the two artists that we're introducing today, Amiria Sunasa from Indonesia and Saya Mit from Myanmar, um, both embody different aspects of those two um, narratives that we talk about in this room. So first, Clarissa will talk about Amiria Sunasa. Yeah, so Amiria is really just, um, she's a mysterious, she's a mysterious figure uh, in Indonesian art. And that also actually had, you know, a lot um, to do with her um, being a, you know, a very soul woman artist among like a group of male artists. And there were a lot of like myths that um, kind of perpetuated you know, about her. And we really have also to thank um, Heidi Arbuckle who wrote her thesis on, on Enria in 2011. And uh, um, so some of the things that are said about her, you know, that she was a nurse, a student of Eurythmics, which is like rhythmic bodily movement time to music, which I guess is another way of saying dancing. <laughs> you know, she was a singer and pianist. And you know, those that, you know, claim to have known her said she was an elephant hunter, you know, a poison maker, that she was a tiger woman. And she also claimed actually to be uh, the princess of uh, the Tidore Sultanate. Uh, and the interesting thing about Heidi Arbuckle's thesis is that, you know, a lot of things, you know, she wasn't really able also to, you know, substantiate because a lot of the information was anecdotal. And yeah, as I mentioned, she was just a rare female painter among, you know, this male group of artists. Um, and she was a member of Persagi, uh, and she participated in one of their landmark exhibitions in 1940. And then mysteriously, like, what a lot of said about her was that she just kind of disappeared, you know, from the art scene in the 1960s, you know, and she was largely forgotten in Indonesian art history. Um, and it was through, you know, Heidi's thesis that she was able to kind of uh, claim that she actually passed away in 1964. So yeah, so she's a very interesting artist. And as with the next one, 
Yeah, so Sayomit is also something of a mysterious figure, um, as are many of the uh, artists from Myanmar who are active in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, Sayomit perhaps more so than others in that, um, unlike many of his contemporaries, most of his works um, kind of disappeared for much of the 20th century and were only um, only started to sort of reappear um, in Myanmar around the 1990s um, when some researchers began to do work there. Um, but what we do know about Sayomit is that he was initially trained in so-called traditional art, so in other words, making paintings for um, chiefly kind of religious and ritual purposes. Um, he trained under a, a traditional artist whose main kind of um, bread and butter was to make paintings for the funerals of monks. Um, but then he very quickly um, became associated with something called the Burma Art Club, which was established in the 1910s in Rangoon, as it was then, um, by some British artists, um, and was really the first kind of semi-formal institution to teach um, kind of Western um, modes of drawing and painting from, from life. Um, so he has um, these kind of two tracks in his in his work, if you if you like the the sort of traditional paintings and the kind of Western style representational realist paintings, like the one we see over here. Um, from a very young age, though, he was already sort of celebrated for his skill in realistic painting. Um, and, and there's a funny little anecdote that I thought I would share um, from one of the one of the articles about him, that um, when he was a child studying at a monastery outside of Yangon, um, he painted on um, a surface in the monastery um, some vines and leaves and a bunch of fruit. And it was so realistic that a squirrel saw the fruit and thought it was real and jumped to try and eat it and knocked over the painting in the process. So this this sort of legend, you know, of course we have no way of knowing if this is true or not, but the, the fact that this legend has been sort of passed on through generations, mostly orally, um, is a sign that um, his ability to kind of render realistically, as you see in this artwork over here, um, was really celebrated and was really sort of central to his his um, his fame and his position in Myanmar art history. Um, like many of his contemporaries, he also worked for um, the kind of emerging new industries of the bustling cosmopolitan port city that, that was Yangon. So he worked for the Tiger Balm Company and he also worked for um, one of the Myanmar film studios that made a number of Burmese language feature films from the early 1920s onwards. Um, but beyond this, we know very little about him and um, many of the, the works of his that have survived um, in mostly in private collections in Myanmar, some in um, museums like in Fukuoka and here, um, have survived in not particularly good condition. Um, so as with Emiria Sunasa, um, there's a, a lot of conservation work that needs to be done for us to be able to appreciate um, the kind of techniques and skills that have gone into the paintings and to understand what they might have looked like originally and um, trace the, the history of the form. So with that, maybe we can turn to what we're all here for, which is to ask Mar about the conservation process for these two paintings. Um, we had a little bit of a chat about this beforehand and we thought before we get started, one question that uh, often comes up is, if you could just tell us what is conservation? What's the difference between conservation and restoration? Wonderful, that's my favorite, <laughs> my favorite question. So basically, I'm so glad that we managed to get along together and gather to discuss about this because during the conservation process, I didn't work on my own. We worked together on the decision making, on the treatment approach that we wanted to decide for both paintings. So conservation is a discipline that requires a lot of knowledge, a lot of different things come into place. And basically, the maximum 
the, the most important thing is think, having in mind the ethics of what is the correct way to approach and what is the most respectful way to approach an artist's work. So our code of ethics, which is internationally more or less the same, stands for minimal intervention, maximum respect to the original, uh, all the materials that we use are materials that can be reversed, and during all the process of every single thing we do, we document everything so that everybody can revise afterwards what has been introduced into the painting. So that is really important, and that's what makes us different from restoration, because our approach when we do a treatment on a painting is not really trying to make the painting look like it looks new, nothing ever happened, and you can't see cracks or you can't see certain things that are due to the pass of time or the patina that time leaves on the painting. So working in an institution, in a museum, is actually wonderful because that's really what, where conservation can be really put into place. Because when working in private practice, there's more of a restoration approach. So inside this process of decision-making comes discussing with different partners. So it's more of an interdisciplinary approach because we need to discuss with curators. We need to understand all, everything that they know about the artist and also compare with other works from the same artist because we also have to put into context what we find in the painting that we're going to be treating. And yeah, understanding the art history of the artist, then understanding as much about materials as we can, which is something we're really trying to build up now because in the Heritage Conservation Center, which is where I currently do my work, we have a new science lab, which is like amazing and a dream for a conservator. We have all the machines, all the equipment, and basically all the paintings in this gallery still need to be researched from the material side because we know very little about materials. And also, the materials used by Southeast Asia can be always compared with the Western materials or, or what the Western artists use. So there's a large database on Western artists and Western materials, but there's not really much on Southeast Asia. So this is one of the tasks that we do during our job, which is quite exciting, because it's kind of like a little bit of forensic, trying to understand what lies underneath, what the artist may have chosen this or that. And yeah, that's why we use the equipment as well for. So when we were treating these two paintings, oh yeah, this is the, this is the photo documentation examination. That, this is part of the photo documentation that we carry out. So once the paintings come out to the lab, the first thing we do is we take photo documentation uh, with different types of lightings, and these lightings is, is called multi-spectra image uh, taking. So with the different spectra of the light, we can see different things. So here you can see this is the composition of a paint layer. So these are all the different layers that can be found in a painting. Doesn't mean that they always have all of this. This is more or less what can be found because certain artists decide to paint on top of the, of the support without applying any priming or applying any sizing or they may be not under drawing. So with the different lightings, we can see different, with the different spectrums, we can see different layers. So with the UV light, which is the, the one with the UV light with the ultraviolet radiation, what we can see is we can see the, the varnish layers because they fluoresce in a very particular way. So if we are 
concern about having previous varnish layers that we want to observe and see. We can also see how they have been applied because with that UV filter, normally you can see if it's evenly applied or if it's uneven, which is also very important when it comes into cleaning because that will have an impact also on our cleaning process because if it's not all consistent, we will have to ha bear that in mind. And then we can also see the retouchings. So if anything has been previously retouched, the retouchings will appear darker in color. They will fluoresce like in a dark spot type. And then with the X-ray, what we can see is we can see uh, further in. So we can see if there's any underneath layers or any under painting. So sometimes there's some artists decided to paint over paint over previous paintings. And then that can tell us if there's something underneath. For this, we need to collaborate with the Singapore hospital because we don't have an X-ray uh, machine with us, also because it requires a lot of uh, health and safety and permissions and things like that, and also it's very expensive. So, I mean, X-ray is not a thing we commonly do. I mean, we don't X-ray every single painting. I mean, when we come into doing this type of examination, you need to reason and, and I mean, the trained eye of a conservator can sometimes tell you, oh, I feel there's something here, because looking under the microscope sometimes also helps understand if there's something underneath. So if it comes into place and we have a good justification, then we, we, we prepare a list and, you know, I think four times a year we collaborate with the Singapore hospital. So we bring the paintings to the hospital, then the hospital people are very excited because they get to see things that they don't normally see. And yeah, and we get to understand what is underneath. So actually I put into this slide because for the Emiria Sonarsa we did take an X-ray because we were a bit hoping to see something underneath. So yeah, I will show you later now what we saw. So, okay, so this is the first painting I will talk about the treatment. And this is an example of a minimal intervention treatment. So actually both paintings have a different, very different approach. And I thought it was great to share with you these two very different cases because it's also showing how every single intervention is different. There's no one magical recipe to restore paintings. Every painting has a different, uh, a different need, a different, and actually you understand what the painting needs when, once you, you engage into a dialogue with the artwork, which is something very weird, but it's something that happens. So first you take your photo, the photographies of your painting, then you start looking at the painting, because it is a very reflective work doing conservation. It's not a, just a hands-on skill where you know, you know how to paint, you know how to mix color, and you just go all over the place. So when we were looking at this painting, there were a few issues concerning the structural side of it, because she, the artist decided to use a plywood to paint this, uh, this piece, which is something a lot of artists do, but unfortunately, it's not our best friend, plywood, because it's not very good. I mean, it, it deteriorates quite easily, so actually, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare for us. But then artists decide to use whatever they use. So, I mean, it's a cheap material. It's a very accessible material. So the reason why she decided, we don't know, but it may have just been that. It's just cheap, easy to, to find, and, and yeah, she decided to use this. So unfortunately, plywood is a very unstable support, and uh, it suffers a lot from the fluctuations and the extreme Southeast Asian climate. 
So what happened with this plywood is it's also a very thin plywood layer. So it delaminated with time. So when the humidity goes up and goes down, all these fluctuations cause extreme cracks on the wood because wood is an organic material that will continue moving all, all it's, like, it's like a life. It will continue moving all its life. So when it moves, these cracks, what they did is that they created like a gap of air, so they open, then they can't close back, then the paint also needs to move at the same time that the, that the support, and all of this causes a lot of stress on the, on the painting. So there's also an added thing, which is somebody decided to add another plywood to the original plywood. This we don't know if it may have been the artist herself. I mean, we can't tell. From what simple observation, we can't just see what who may have done this. It may have been her herself or somebody else trying to stop the already deterioration of all the cracks and the bubbles of air, the gaps that were being created in the support. And uh, unfortunately, it's very irreversible, this, because applying another wood onto another wood is not the best choice because the other wood will continue moving in different directions. So it doesn't stop the process. It actually creates more tensions on the support. So unfortunately, it's irreversible because they, they use an epoxy resin. It's really hard and removing it will cause a lot of damage on the paint and it's really extreme treatment and yeah, we definitely would never go for that. So what we decided to do is, I mean, once we looked at it and then we took the photos and then it comes into here is when it comes the x-ray, maybe we can go to the next. So these are the different uh, UV, the different lights that we use for the photo documentation. So this is just normal light, so just the visible spectrum where we can all see. And then this is the UV light, which already shows you here, you can see these darker areas are all the areas of retouching. That means that it's not original. It means it's not original or contemporary to the time the paint was painting. But that doesn't tell us if the artist herself may have done it. Because even if something is retouched, I mean, we do find a lot of artists that retouch their paintings themselves. So even when you see that, doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to remove it because this is not the artist's intention. It's some other conservator that tried their best, but they did it in a very patchy way. Let's try to remove it. It's, you have to think about, okay, what is the next step we can take to understand what's going on? That's why we decided to take an X-ray to see if we could see if how much could we find underneath that repainting. Unfortunately, sometimes we decide to, I mean, sometimes we use certain techniques and it doesn't always give us the answer. So in this case, this is the X-ray image of the painting, which comes in different sizes because they use, we need to stitch the images because they can't take the image in a full size. They take different photos and then we stitch them together. And yeah, it doesn't show us much of what we can find underneath. So it wasn't really giving us the answer to our question. After gathering all of this, we discussed back with curators and we all, you know, met up together. So we saw the evidences of what we have managed to gather. And then we decided that we don't have any reference and we don't have enough reference, enough information to embark into removing that area that seems like a later touch up. Because we also don't know if she may have done it herself due to the bad condition of the support that was already showing all these cracks and all these gaps of in between the layer, the plywood layers. So yeah, we decided not to go ahead with that intervention because it's very extreme and it's irreversible. I mean, in the, in the meaning that when you clean, you decide to clean and remove something, 
there's no way back. So these type of things, maybe in the future, we will be able to do further research and then maybe decide to go ahead. But at this point, this was not the decision we wanted to, to go ahead with. So at this point, we decided that what we had to do was just stabilize the support, make sure that all those gaps and all those bubbles of air were secure. So the light, next slide. Oh yeah, this is, yeah. Uh, so this is actually, um, we took this also from Heidi's thesis, but the black and white photo you see there is uh, what appeared in Emria Sunasa's catalog of her solo show in 1946. And then you have the, in the colored image, so that is actually of the painting in our collection. So you can see actually there are some slight differences. So whether you know, our painting may have been you know, the one from 1946 and then um, Emria you know, added, you know, uh, added onto herself, you know, reworked her paintings at a later date. I mean, that's also possible. And she's known to actually have been, you know, to have done this with some of her other paintings. So, I mean, she could have also just made another version of her painting. That's also possible. But we felt with the information that we had, we weren't comfortable with removing um, the later additions to the painting because it actually could have been done by the artist herself. Maybe just to add on there, that part of the reason why we... we so we have evidence that she um, retouched and, and, and remade and reworked other paintings. This is something that she liked to do. Um, but what we don't have for Amiria um, is um, her own correspondence or her own writings. And this sort of sets her apart from um, other members of the Pasaji uh, collective that she was a member of. Um, so the, the, one of the founders of that collective, um, Sujayono, whose paintings you see many of in the next gallery, um, you know, was, was not only a prolific artist, but also wrote extensively about his work and um, the philosophy of his work. And his journals and personal records and so on were, were kept by his family and are now held together in an estate. None of this exists for Amiria. Um, Heidi's entire thesis relies on kind of other people's accounts, memories, um, things she can piece together from exhibition records and so on. So we don't have the artist's own kind of archival word um, about her intentions. So that's sort of part of the reason why we choose to proceed very carefully. So in the next slide, you can see, you can, this is another type of photo technique that we use when we, when we first document the paintings upon arrival. This is a raking light, which is a 45 degree angle light that is wonderful to show distortions or unevenness, like topography unevenness on the, on the surface. So here you can already see all these bubbles of air have caused all these gaps and all this unevenness in the, in the painting, which actually, yeah, were quite bad and disturbing in order to appreciate the, you know, properly the painting. So we decided to focus on that and try to you know, amend that as much as possible. So when it came to deciding which material to use, which is already the next slide, uh, what we did was we decided to kind of like try to recreate the wooden material that had already been lost due to all these movements because there was a lot of empty gaps in between. So what we did is we, we used um, uh, paper paste, which is cellulose at the end. So we were trying kind of like to re 
inject cellulose, so these whole areas will be bulked back in and the structure will be sound and stable again. So we use um, uh, an adhesive that is also cellulose-based, and then we, we mix together with the paper pulp, and then we introduce this because the gaps were quite big. We introduced the paper pulp inside. So what we did is we, we just closed those gaps. Then we used uh, infill material to create, uh, to level all the area. And then we did some minimum retouching because the, there were just lines of, of the cracks that had to be retouched. So yeah, this is really, I mean, I, I think it was really, we were happy with this treatment. The painting now can be seen in a, I mean, there's still, when you see it from the side, you can still see some unevenness, but I mean, that's what it is. We can't, we can't put back all the wood because when, once wood starts moving, it's very difficult to create again a flat surface and recreate the whole surface, but the gaps have been filled. So this has helped align some of the cracks because some were higher and some were smaller. So we tried to build them up so we could just align them both together and I think, yeah, I think now it looks okay. So we were happy with it. This is a minimal approach, it's just not very intervention, it's just more structural, which is sometimes what really some of the paintings that we have require, especially if, as, as the curators say, we don't have that much information to be able to trace whatever happened to this painting. So yeah, this I think is a very respectful approach and yeah, this is what this is how we decided to, to go ahead with this. So yeah, for this painting, I think that's more or less it. Maybe we can go to the next one. This is a good example of a much, uh, much more extensive intervention. So that's why this is kind of like the opposite of going into a minimal approach. This painting, when it came into the collection, it it was not in very good condition. It wasn't so much of a structural issue, it was more like an aesthetical issue. So unfortunately, it had very big distortions, uh, massive undulations, and, um, and it was, uh, it was uh, painted on a canvas and it had been uh, um, secured to a, car to a cardboard. So it, wasn't, it, it would have been originally stretched on a, on a stretcher, but the stretcher was not present anymore. So we started taking the photo documentation. Go to the next one, as we did before in the other one. So this Reiki light can also show you how extreme the undulations were. So actually the painting had lost, had totally lost its original, like, uh, I mean a fabric is meant to have some flexibility. This painting was hard like a rock. I mean, it was like a cardboard because all these undulations had really, like toughened the surface and had made it very, yeah, not very flexible. So we took different raking lights. We take it from different angles. So here, yeah, you can see, especially on the edges, it was quite extreme. And then we you took also a UV light photo, which shows how, this is a good example of how uneven the varnish layer is, because it may have been possible that somebody had tried to remove the varnish from the face, because the fluorescence of the varnish layer on the face is much lower. So this was also very important when we went ahead to carry on the varnish removal because we had to be aware that this layer was not even. So when you are carrying, at the end you use your hand and you use a cotton swab and you have to be carefully and sensitive enough not to over clean certain areas that 
have may have a lower like a thinner layer of varnish. So there's another photo I think that shows the details of the face. So this is the different. This is a good example of different lights, which includes also infrared light. So infrared is another spectrum, which is the one that we use to to show the underdrawing. And if there's uh, any pencil or any sketch that the artist may have done. So yeah, in this case, I don't think there was much pencil found, but it was just such a beautiful image that we just wanted to add. And yeah, this shows normal light, Reiki light, again, UV light with some patchy areas because the, the, green, the green tone will be the varnish and the areas that look a bit a bit more violish are just paint without varnish. So yeah, they show how uneven, I mean, with normal light, you could already see it was very uneven, the varnish layer. So when it came to this, we talked with the curators because this varnish was very yellowed as well. And it was very disturbing because it wasn't showing this rich palette of colors that are like very vibrant. So what we do normally is we normally Take, um, we do some, some solubility to test to find out if the varnish is reversible without compromising the original layer. Because sometimes we also may find ourselves that some things may not be reversed without compromising the underneath. So yeah, we need to find if we can find the perfect solvent that can allow us to work safely without touching the paint, the paint layer at all. And we, took, we did some tests. So I think it's the next image. So we did this test and then Roger and Clarissa came over to the lab and then we discussed and decided if, you know, if this was really gonna help show the painting in the best, in, in the best way it should be shown and showing the real original colors. We felt comfortable because it was safe and it was not compromising the original paint layer. So yeah, we decided to go ahead and remove this very disturbing varnish layer and very yellowed and yes. So I put this slide here just to sort of give an indication of um, if you look at the painting hanging on the wall over there with the sort of the rich, vibrant colours, the really sort of saturated um, pink in the, the longi, the very sort of saturated green velvet looking um, tablecloth, all of the textures of different fabrics that the artist has taken such care to depict. Um, that gives us a sense of what might the what the original vibrancy might have been like in um, other contemporaneous works from Myanmar. So on the left here we have another portrait, very similar sort of um, compositional style and genre, um, attributed also to Sayamit. But you can see this painting is in much worse condition. Um, Seeing now the, um, the one we have on the wall after it's been cleaned up, we can just sort of imagine the richness of colour that might have originally been there. And then likewise on the right is another artist, Saya A, um, a slightly older generation, um, who, this is a painting that's actually painted on zinc. Um, this work has also been conserved, but this is as, as bright as the colours can get, um, because they've simply as a result of the kind of chemical reactions on the zinc, um, they've faded over time. But this painting is actually on display now down the hallway in, in Gallery 2. So looking at it, it's quite quite wonderful to see now the sort of um, fine fineness of the line work underneath these faded colours, but seeing the vibrancy of, of the, the um, conserved painting here, we can sort of imagine that these two would once have been full with these rich, saturated tones. 
So in other words, this is an example where we as curators and our historians really learn from the conservatives. And we learn from them because they, they, they also share with us all this material, you know, because as I said before, we need to put into context. I mean, we need to look at all the pieces from the same artist or what was being painted at the same time. I mean, we can't just isolate every painting. That's why we need to also, yeah, know the hard history behind to understand the and put it into context. So this was rather complicated because also, we also work under very tight deadlines and time. So that's also kind of like the reality of how we work because this painting had to be ready for rotation. And it was a new acquisition that came in, I think, like two years ago, something like that. So it had been pending for conservation. So we had to speed up and think about a process that would be fast and effective. And yeah, we, we did have a time deadline here that was really pushing. So what we did in this case is, we, what we had to do is we had to kind of like bring back the flexibility to the fabric that had been lost due to all those tensions that the, that the, that the support had suffered. And actually the tensions had been due to the fluctuations again of the humidity, especially humidity. I mean, temperature is not so much of an issue, but humidity is really an issue because this is a cotton canvas. Cotton canvas is extremely sensitive to humidity. And yeah, being exposed to that is definitely gonna, gonna cause problems. In addition, this painting was quite particular because it has a paint, it has a paint layer on the front, but it has a second paint layer on the back, which is just, it's just, um, it's just a plain color, which may have been used as an isolation, isolation layer. It may have been done by the artist, it may have been done by somebody afterwards trying to preserve the canvas from moving, but that is not a good option either because you're stopping the canvas from moving. The canvas is still gonna wanna move. Then you have the tensions of the paint drying in one way, the paint on the back drying in another way. So yeah, this is why this canvas was so stiff. So what we did is we, we created a humidity chamber. So we have this Lascaux uh, stretcher, which is wonderful because you can open it and close it depending on how you wanna work on it. And then we have these craft paper stripes, which have a metacellulose um, glue as well. So what we do is we glue them on the canvas and then, uh, and then when, it's, when it's inside the humidity chamber, the, the vapor of the water that will start coming through will reactivate this glue. And then when this glue dries back again, it will tense. It will cause some tension on the canvas. So we repeated this process like five or six times because also wanting to bring back to the original status of a canvas when it was originally uh, f uh, flexible and, and as it would have been, is something you need to do slowly. You can because it's very stressful as well and the paint also suffers from it. So it's a process you have to slowly do it and try to move it back to what it would have been before. So we repeated the process, we put it inside the chamber like two, two hours or one hour and a half, depending with the different timings. We had a bucket of water underneath with saturated water. And yeah, this is something that helped help give back and remove all these undulations as well slowly. So the next photo. So this is when we got to the stage where we were kind of happy and really yeah, we were happy with the, with the result and all, all the big undulations that we had managed to remove. But because of this 
pain layer that I was mentioning before that is on the reverse, that is really kind of like, it's kind of like isolating and not really letting the humidity get to the canvas. So it's like blocking from the humidity having the effect that it would have had on a canvas that didn't have that, that thick paint layer. We also thought about removing it, but then again, we don't know if this is original. It may have been done by the artist. I mean, it's just, it's just a plain color. It's not that it will change much, but it was really thick. It was really difficult to remove, and it was compromising also the original. So it was a very extreme treatment. We also didn't have the time to do it. And we decided that with further information of what is the reason of this layer, we shouldn't remove it. So what we did at the, in the last stage, which with the painting already outside of the Lascaux strainer, we, we use a bloating paper with some humidity and then we put weights on top and we just try to have the humidity more in direct contact because anyway, it was not reaching the canvas or the, or the paint layer because it's just touching the, the paint in the back, the, the layer of the paint on the back. So this was good as well because it was quite successful. We did use a bit of heat from the iron, which is also something I don't, don't do it at home, because <laughs> it's very dangerous to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has to be done by a conservator, because you can re it can really go wrong. Also, if there's varnish layers on top, it can really go wrong, <laughs> and it can be quite irreversible. So yeah, we did that, and then yeah, we were kind of like happy with it. So later, when you go and have a look at it, you can see that there are still some lines in the very incited, like in an incision line, especially on the skirt, but these lines are due to the movements of the paint on the reverse. And this is something that I put here in my conclusion, this is sometimes that we as contributors have to accept sometimes. I mean, we can't pretend that everything is, almost everything is treatable and everything can be done, but sometimes we just have to accept that certain patina of time or, or or damages that have been caused on the paint layer, as Roger was saying before, the royal family painting that we have also in the galleries is something that is completely irreversible because there's the chemical, I mean, there's a chemical reaction that has had an effect on the paint itself. So it's really, there's a really big white layer around it and it doesn't show the vibrancy that the colors may have had before. But this is something that we can't revert. It's just a chemical reaction of very complex, I won't go there because that's a bit complicated to explain. But yeah, sometimes we just have to accept that, you know, certain things are just gonna be part of the, of whatever the painting has been faced to, whatever damages, whatever previous interventions that some other people may have done with the best intention, but maybe not the best skills or, so yeah. We finally accepted what it is. We're happy because the painting can be shown in a much better, way than when it arrived to us. And yeah, that's part of what we do. So as I was saying before, we do create like a dialogue with the artwork because it's a very long process. It starts from the photo, then we have a wonderful microscope as well that we use to look like in three dimensions on the paint and that kind of like shows you a lot and you can even understand the painter's brush stroke and how he would have applied the paint. So slowly during this dialogue process, you kind of like see what are the things that you should be doing. It's also based on experience, but and it's based on the train eye of a conservator that from all the previous things you've seen before can tell you what is the most suitable approach for every treatment and every painting. And yeah, 
Then we engage with curators as well. So every single thing that that we do, I mean, some things are quite straightforward. We don't consult them all the time because then they wouldn't be able to do their job. But when it comes to these aesthetical issues, they have to come into the picture because it may make a very big difference and a big change on what is the original appearance of the artwork. And if, if the appearance is going to improve, then we go ahead and we decide to just go ahead with the different treatments. So, yeah, this is more, more or less... What, we, what we've done in these two pieces. Yeah, I guess just to add to that, like, you know, we curators, we also really need to be in dialogue with the conservators as well. Because like, yes, we have a lot of the like latest equipment, all of this technology. And you know, some of these are like, you know, sent to us. But you know, sometimes I'm looking at all of these, you know, science was never my favorite subject at school, sorry. But like sometimes I'm looking at like all of these like graphs or and I'm, you know, I wouldn't understand what I'm looking at if I'm not in, you know, in conversation, you know, with someone like Mar, you know, who can, you know, guide me I'm like, okay, so what 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 does this mean? You know, and how can this, you know, help us to better understand the artwork and the artist? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, we, we need to work together and this is, you know, this is part of what we do during the process of conservation. So, uh, to, are there any questions from the floor or shall we keep talking because there's other things to say? Yeah. With the sleeve? The one of the varnish removal? Before, yeah, because the yellow, the yellow tone is the is the yellow varnish, yeah, yeah, because I removed it. Let's see, let's go back. Oh no, I think it's the light of the photo as well. No, it's not that. Yeah, I think that maybe the light is not so good. Yeah. No, 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 you, you can see it, it's, it's quite brownish. Yeah, I think it's the light of a photo, yeah, maybe. Because some of these photos, we took them in the lab because we were really rushing this treatment as well. So, yeah. So when we clean, we also use, we clean by volumes. So we always follow a volume because it's not good to clean doing straight lines. I mean, they're really good for the photo, the straight lines, like cleaning halfway through a face or things like that, but that may become very irreversible with time. So it's, it's a really... Yeah, it's a really flow, I mean, it's like a, you need a lot of sensitivity to carry out this treatment and a lot of experience as well to be able, and it's also part of what the hand, your hand tells you when you're, because you can feel, you can actually feel when you're removing the varnish. You can feel how the cotton swaps moves around and you feel how you're slowly opening the varnish layer and slowly getting into, into it and opening it up and dissolving it. So, yeah. That, that removal of the yellow varnish colour was really one of the most exciting things, I think, for us, because um, the, the, the painting, you know, it's, you can see that it's, uh, the composition of the painting is very similar to a photo studio portrait, um, which was very popular at the time, um, everywhere, but um, in particular, it was very popular in, in Rangoon. Um, there were many photo studios downtown where the artist had his studio. Um, and gentlemen like this one who's portrayed in the, in the picture, we don't know who he was, but he was for sure some kind of a, a civil servant, government official, fairly high ranking. Um, people like this would also have, have had photo portraits taken. And so 
but so this was clear to us that the, the composition, the artists had chosen a composition that very closely kind of echoed um, uh, photo studio portraits. And the other thing that was clear to us was that the artist was paying a lot of attention to um, these kind of imported fashions. Um, so there's the, the cane, um, cane um, that the, the, the gentleman is holding. Um, there's a, a, a ring on his finger. There's this fine crystal ware on the table. There's a, the, the, the um, velvet tablecloth, as I mentioned, with these sort of very rich tassels, tassels also in the velvet curtains in the background. But what wasn't clear to us was that the longi, the, the Burmese skirt, um, had also been painted with this very fine detail. So initially it was covered with this, this yellow varnish. It looked like he'd sort of just rushed through that in order to focus his attention on these kind of imported European fashions but in fact the artists had spent just as much care and attention in rendering the kind of intricate folds of fabric in the the Burmese longi there as well which was an interesting um, discovery for us and as for the um, the relationship to the photo studio portrait after the cleaning it became clear to us that you, if you look at this portrait there's a, a sort of a, a very convincing naturalistic rendering of the, the volume on the face but the depth of field is quite shallow so it's actually it doesn't look quite realistic the way he's depicting space it's a little bit flat um, unlike um, most naturalistic sort of realist portraits like this um, of the period um, by artists who perhaps had had more of a formal academic training where they would have had more kind of tonal variation to show the dark the, the background would be darker so that we get more of a sense of spatial illusion that's not there in this picture and that sort of shallowness very much resembles a photograph where the the photographer's lens captures um, the light throughout the entire room and, and so you often get this sort of um, flatness as well. So seeing that, um, seeing that the background really was um, quite pale in tone, and then also seeing that the longi skirt really was rendered in such exquisite detail were two kind of new discoveries for us that we would never have been able to see until you'd removed that horrible brown yellow varnish. <laughs> It was exciting as well for us because we don't normally have that kind of yellow varnish layer in the paintings we have in our collection because most of these paintings are not even varnished. So this is not like the old masters that have those never-ending varnish layers that have been oxidized along the centuries. So yeah, for us, when it comes to removing varnish, we all get super excited and everybody wants to carry out the treatment. So yeah, it was... It was, it's fun, yeah. It's fun, but it's also one of the most dangerous uh, treatments in conservation, because when it comes to cleaning, as I said before, you really need a conservation skills. You need to understand a lot of chemistry, because that involves chemistry. And sometimes we get people that come to visit us in the lab and they ask us, oh, so how can I clean this painting? And sometimes I feel bad because I feel they think that maybe we don't want to tell them our secret, but it's, there's just not one magic formula. I mean, that was in the past when in the, you know, in the old restoration times, people had magic formulas, everything was very secretive, people didn't want to share it. So, yeah, we do, we, it, it may take one or two days of doing lots of tests with a lot of different chemicals, with different mixtures, until we can find out what is the best. And yeah, the damage that can be caused by cleaning a painting with something that is not adequate, even water may be extremely harmful if you go into using water to clean a painting. So yeah, not to disencourage anybody, but yeah, maybe please don't try to clean paintings because yeah, it's really, it's really complex. And sometimes it, it just can, cannot be done. I mean, we have a lot of paintings here that are very, I mean, they're still, they're still drying because oil takes 100 years to dry. 
So some of these paintings are not even 100 years old. So if the oil is still very mature and very fresh, removing a varnish may be very risky because you may be removing the, the oil, the original oil paint layer as well. So sometimes we just have to compromise and say, okay, it can be clean. Maybe in the future it will be clean. Maybe there's new, there's new methods, there's new, because we're continuously developing in conservation. And I mean, I studied 20 years ago, and that there's things now that didn't exist at that time. There's even, uh, there's even deterioration or alterations on, on paintings that we didn't know how to name. We call it efflorescences. Now they call it metal soaps. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing science. We walk along, we, we walk, I mean, we work with science conservation as well which is a quite new discipline. And yeah, there's always new materials, there's always new research, new ways of introducing. We're also trying, I mean, conser internationally conservation is also trying to move away from using very hazard materials and very, because some of them are very bad for us as well. Certain solvents are extremely dangerous and yeah, they can be very bad for our health. So we're trying to go into a more green approach also because the removal of those, then disposing those materials is, so yeah, it's, there's a lot of factors that come into it and there's a lot of people doing research. It's hard because there's never enough money to do, especially overseas, because it's difficult. But yeah, there's a lot of very clever people trying to come up with new materials and yeah, and we just, we just keep on learning. It's not, you don't reach a level when you know everything, I mean, and I'm so grateful to be working in this collection because working with a collection is, yeah, it gives you knowledge on certain pieces, on certain, it, it adds that extra value of understanding your collection, knowing what you work, what you've been working on, and yeah, it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> paintings were done under extreme tight deadlines. So I think we may have spent, I mean, in this one, I didn't work on my own. My colleague here, Irene, she also worked on this painting and other colleagues as well, because we were doing a lot of things at the same time. So I think we may have spent 100 hours in total, all of us, in this painting, and probably in the other one as well, 80 hours or something like that. So yeah, more or less estimate, yeah. I mean, they weren't, extreme extensive treatments but yeah they did they do have quite a lot of hours yeah yes yeah then we applied a layer of varnish yeah so then when I mean because there was a varnish previously then we put again another varnish also because once you remove a varnish the paint the colors become less saturated so if a painting has been varnished you definitely mostly all of the times need to apply another varnish so what we do is we apply a varnish that is uh, conservation grade. So we don't apply like Talent, Rembrandt, Winsor & Newton. I mean, they're good for artists, but not for conservation. So there was a big research done some years ago on resins that are very reversible. So the resins that we use can be easily removed in any, any time. Because we, we used to use natural resin varnish, like Danmar, because Danmar, along the years, we know that it's a natural resin varnish, is what the artists used in the past, and that definitely is just, it's easy to dissolve any time. It doesn't, it doesn't, because there's a process, chemical process which is called cross-linking, 
is a, is a yeah, chemical term. And when that happens, then avarnis becomes irreversible, meaning no solvent can dissolve it. So that happens with the commercial varnishes. But I mean, when artists apply them, they apply them with a different intention than we apply them. We follow in the code, the code of ethics of conservation. We only apply things that can be reversed always. So these varnish that I applied can be, if anybody were to decide to remove it in the future, it will be easily reversible with, yeah, with, with normal solvents. No, mm, normally no. No, actually, no. And that also comes into discussion with the curators because, I mean, if a painting is unvarnished, it was the artist's intention not to varnish the painting. So then, it's, I mean, it's not up to us to come and varnish the painting because then it will change the whole appearance of what the artist intended. So Clarissa and I and Roger as well, we were working on a, we're working on these Cambodian paintings that are in the lab now, the George Crosslet. And uh, this, this artist didn't varnish his paintings, but these paintings are from 1914 and they're quite unsaturated. So we did decide in that case, after discussing with them, to apply a very thin layer of varnish that actually now is not even, you can't really see a varnish, shiny varnish layer because it's really, really thin, but it does saturate the colors. So yeah, in certain cases, I mean, he didn't intend to put the varnish, but maybe because he was just, these paintings were very plein air or like very fast sketches. So maybe they were not intended to have a varnish layer, but it helps us saturate the colors. So yeah, it can come into discussion, but normally from our approach, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. It will have to be just because, because yeah, in, like in this, ta in this case, it, it helps un see the colors more saturated as they would have been, because oil with time also becomes transparent. So it will be more and more transparent, and it's a very fast painting, so there's not a lot of paint layer. So sometimes it may help. But that's kind of like, that's why we always, when it comes to a statical approach, we always discuss with them. Because a statical is something that is not necessary, it's just an addition. And that definitely requires somebody else's opinion as well. Can't just be the conservator. Other questions? Yes. No, no, it's in the original. So what we do is um, we have like a very methodological way of working. So we have like a table and in this table, what we do is we, we, we normally do it on the edges of the canvas. So this, this wasn't the first solubility test. This was when I was already trying to show Roger and Clarissa what was gonna be the final result. So we go to the edge of the painting and we take very small sections and we just roll very small cotton swabs, and then we keep our cotton swabs to also differentiate. So when it comes to the, to the test, we have to test all the different colors because it may be easy to remove the varnish, for example, white on the white tones. White is the, is the pigment that dries faster, but when it comes to blacks or browns, normally they're still very wet. So if you have a painting that has white areas and you just carry out the, the test there, you will mean, oh yeah, it's fine. No, the white is not moving. There's no color coming out. But then you may find out that the blacks are, are, are sensitive to the solvent you're using. So we follow, oh, this is a bit complex. We follow like a triangle, solubility triangle. 
So we have this already prepared test of different solvents. So there's an order, it's very methodological. And yeah, we just carry out in the small section. So yeah, sometimes we, if we, if they can't, if they can't be clean, then we just touch up those little samples and just apply varnish again. If we decide that we can't go ahead and clean. So yeah, no, it has to be in the actual, yeah, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to know what's gonna remove the varnish, yeah. I think we've talked a lot more about the Siamit than about the Amiria Sunasa. So maybe yeah. if there's no other questions from the floor, I'd like to turn back to the Amiria Sunasa. Um, for those who don't know, hanging to the left of the painting, the, the other work there is also by the same artists from around the same period. And it really it strikes me that it's such a, it's a very similar palette. It's um, yeah. very dark tones. Yeah. Um, was there any question for you when you were um, treating the Emiria work that perhaps there were lighter colors underneath? Or do you feel that this sort of dark palette is really um, true to her original tension, intentions as well? I do think it's really her original intention because also we, this, this painting came as a new acquisition, I think three years ago or four, and it, it came with other paintings. There were a total of five, I think. So when we were working on this painting, we had another of her painting, which is, uh, is some flowers. I think it's chrysanthemums. So it's an image of some chrysanthemums in a jar. So we brought both paintings on, to the lab on purpose as well, because we know so little about her. I mean, we treat certain paintings like Georgia, Liu Kang, we've seen so many of them already, we know them so well. But with Emiria, we don't know that much about her. So I decided to bring both paintings at the same time. So in a way we could compare and see if there were differences or similarities. So there is, yeah, it's very particular, her palette. And there's a certain type of like tone that she applies, like a darker tone or patina, that it may be intentional. Yeah, the thing is that we know so little, we would need to take a cross section because from the visual analysis, we gather certain data. Then the next data we could gather is taking a small sample. So with a small sample, you can put it into different machines and it can tell you like different composition of the materials. And you can also create like a, you can see the layer by layer from a cross section and then you can identify the different layers that she may have applied and how thick one is, how thick, but we haven't reached that stage because also now we didn't have the time, but we hope that that is something that we can yeah, continue doing. We still have the other one in the lab because that wasn't selected for rotation. And we did look at it very much underneath the, the microscope so yeah we don't have anything conclusive but we did gather a few data and yeah the palette is quite interesting we did try because there does seem to be like a layer or something that looks like a varnish but it's really thin you can see it over let's see if we can see the uv lights can we go back i think in the uv light you can see a little bit there was some kind of fluorescence of something which doesn't mean it has to be a varnish layer, like a varnish on itself, intentional varnish. So there is something that fluoresces because this, as you can see, is very opaque and very matte. So there is a layer of something, but I'm not really sure that is really just varnish. So we did, did some solubility tests to try to remove it. And the color that came underneath actually was quite bright. But I don't know, from, a, uh, from my intuition, from the conservation eye, is that 
that may not be her final intention. She may have applied, because all these paintings have the same tone, the same, so that's what makes me think, is this a patina? So at this point, with the references that we have and the information that we have, I don't think we're in the position of removing that, because we may come up with something very bright, but that may not be the original intention, because artists apply patina, especially in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of artists that use tainted varnishes, and that is totally like intentional. And, and then if you remove that, how are you gonna, how, you, that's something that, I mean, you can remove varnish and apply another varnish, but if you remove something that was intentionally meant to create a patina or a tone of like these like darker tones, and you remove it, that you can't, you can't put it back again because you, you can't taint your own varnish and see, oh, because that's very artistic. We wouldn't be able to, to imitate that because I would be trying to fake Emiria and that wouldn't be right. So yeah, for what we have now, it was yeah, not the moment to go ahead with that, but there is a bit of a, a kind of like vibrant, especially on the blue later, maybe you can have a look on the blue, on the blue flower on the top, there's some blue tone, and that did seem quite bright, trying to remove that layer, but yeah, I don't know, I think it may be intentional, so we decided not to go ahead at the other time now. We may not have her writings, but do we know her, her biography? Do we know what happened to her for the war years, right? The World War II years? Do we have any information about her? I mean, she was active um, during, during that period, you know, um, but even then, it's still, you know, I think not enough information, you know, to make that call to do, like, mm -hmm. you know, more extensive um, conservation treatment. And yeah, what we do know is that she, you know, she did, do other versions of her work or maybe rework her, her earlier paintings later. So, you know, knowing that, you know, we didn't feel like, you know, that we wanted to do something as invasive as removing over painting, because that actually... About that. My question is her biography. So was she from a rich family, poor family? If she was a woman, why was she painting? Like, more about her life. Yeah. Not That's just the painting. Maybe it's out of context, but I thought, can it still be relevant? Mm -hmm if we have any information? I think um, even with her, yeah, so even with her, like, uh, with her biography, you know, I think, like, um, Heidi, who did her thesis on her, actually found it quite challenging, because a lot of them are, you know, anecdotal, you know, so even, you know, establishing, like, her, her birth year and her death year was actually extremely challenging also for her. And even her death year, she just had to also kind of make the call that someone who was her friend who wrote in her was probably more reliable in calling that. So it actually can be, you know, quite complex. So we know for, for a fact that um, because she was a member of Persaji, this collective, they were exhibiting actively throughout the war years. It was a sort of a nationalist collective. Um, they were featured in propaganda magazines that were produced um, under the Japanese occupation. Um, uh, so we know that she was she was actively making and exhibiting her art during the wartime years. But all of this sort of uncertainty that exists, actually other art historians, um, uh, a woman called Wulan Digantoro, who's written the sort of feminist art history of, of um, Indonesian modern art, speculates that these different stories and myths um, about Amiria, the tiger hunter, the poison maker, all this sort of thing, that these were actually sort of deliberately cultivated by her. So it was she herself who claimed to be a princess, but we don't know if that's 
true, and that this sort of um, encouraging of multiple versions of her of, of her biography in, increased the sort of sense of mystery and meant that we could never really pin down who she was as a person, and thus <coughs> perhaps makes more of a focus on one the collective that she sort of circulates in and two the work itself. Yeah. She wasn't a trained artist, no? So, I mean, she didn't go through a training. That's why also her chose, choose, when she chose her material, she may have chose just whatever she found and experimented with things. Because in, so, in another painting that we have from her in the collection, there was a layer of something that looked like a soil, like some, time, some type of like dust, but it may have been intentional as well. So yeah, that's why that's what we were saying before, you really need to put into context. And I mean, whatever we do in this painting, whatever we decide, it has to be a similar approach with the other paintings that we have by her, because we can't go into just going ahead and removing things here and then leaving the other one. So it's a dialogue of all the things that we can find from her. And yeah, unfortunately, we don't have that much information of what... Yeah, it could be, it could be exactly. We, we can't even make a statement of what she chose it for because actually a lot of Southeast Asia, well, even Western artists use, use plywood. So, I mean, plywood is something that, yeah, a lot of artists choose just because it's easy, it's accessible, or maybe their intention is to have a flat surface to create and not have a, have to, you know, do something on a fabric material that will give up end up result different. Because it's interesting, I was looking at the other one, next to, the next one to this, which is actually one I haven't had the opportunity to look at it in the lab, because it's been here, I think, all the time. And now looking at it, it looks like it's a canvas for sure, but I think it's glued onto a board as well. Because it's, it's very flat and it has like some lines of distortions. So she may have, you know, she may have been felt more comfortable when she was applying her paint using something flat. So yeah, we, that's something we, we, can, we can certify or we can assume. It's just a speculation of what maybe the reason. About five or six, I think. Yeah, so not all have actually been on display yet. Because, you know, as you know, like the Southeast Asia Gallery, there's like a certain chronology and narrative. So sometimes, you know, our new acquisitions don't fit this particular narrative, you know, but it's something that we hope to use in like our changing exhibitions when you have another opportunity uh, to do so. Yes, yeah, so I think that's the advantage when we have more than one painting by one artist in the collection. Yes, yeah, yeah. So another thing that um, Heidi also mentioned in her thesis that um, the other painting that's there, Orang Irian, yeah, it's uh, made on canvas, and she said that it's actually one of her, likely one of her first paintings that was made on canvas. And, oh. and she hypothesized that it was because that it's more expensive, and you know, it was probably also more difficult to procure. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's oh, quite that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, why is it so bright? The, the, the actual one is so dark. No, the colors are no, the photographies are also, it's also yeah. photography, They're so sometimes when bed. you're... Yeah, no, no, I think it's because depending on the light you use to take the photography, the colors may change a lot, yeah. I think this is overexposed. So then when you overexpose, the tones don't become the original tones anymore. I mean, we, I don't know where that, that photo's mine? No. 
not sure. <laughs> because, I mean, we normally you do the photography in a photo lab where we use like photo lights and then we have a camera with the filters and everything adequate. So, I mean, in theory, all the photos are, have the light that they, that they look, at, look like. But yeah, this was interesting as well because when we were looking under the microscope, later maybe you can see there's this, there's this, another thing that made me think that she may have retouched the painting herself is that there's some little uh, red, she, she applied these little red brush strokes that are like fruits or, or some kind of red details. And that seems to be, she may have done it at a later stage. So it may have been part of when she was retouching the area, that big area of loss, that probably also had a water damage because on the lower part, you will see in this area here, this is quite extreme and it may have been because it may have been exposed to yeah, water leakage or something. So that's why she may have, have it stored in an, in an adequate space and then something happened. And this red, this, under, looking under the microscope, these little red spikes, look like they have been applied afterwards. The way they're positioned, or the way they're positioned in the, on top of the original. So she may have decided to do that and then, oh, let me put this red. I mean, it could have been like a reworking of her. She may have decided to add some details afterwards. Oh, that I don't know. This is something that I think we're not really allowed to say, but, um, but it is an interesting question, though, because, you know, I mentioned um, Suja Yono, who was one of the co-founders of the collective that she was um, a part of and who's a, 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 um, a much better known artist, um, in part because he was more prolific, but in part also because he, he wrote and, you know, and because he's a man, um, but because he, he, wrote, he wrote extensively and um, his uh, family and estate holds a kind of comprehensive archive of his, his writings and documentation of his work and so on, which means that it's easier to do research. But of course, it's a chicken and egg situation. But for um, an artist like Sugiono, the prices um, for his artworks when they sell at auction or in the, in the open market um, are quite high. Whereas there's not such an extensive market for Emiria's works. And um, when they have sold at auction or in the open market, the prices are generally lower. So higher prices lead to more research. More research leads to higher prices. Um, and uh, conservation is, is a part of that um, cycle as well, I suppose. Maybe it's a good time to finish. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, Ma. <laughs>